Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is me, Steffi Cohen. And Hayden Bell. And today we have the pleasure of sitting down and talking to my favorite writer slash author, Ryan Holiday. You might know him from his other books, The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, The Daily Stoic, and many others that he has written that have not only changed my life, Hayden's, but many other people's lives. The topic for today's podcast with Ryan is going to be on his new book that's coming out at the end of September. His book is called Courage is Calling, and it's the first of a four-part series called The Four Virtues. Virtues. Virtues? Virtues? Listen, sorry, I have an accent, okay? English is my second language. <laughs> so you have courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom. The first one's courage, and that's what we are going to be talking about. So the book is broken down into three parts. Part one is fear. talks about what it means for, for people making decisions, how to use it to your advantage, how it can um, work against you as well, and how... Um, in what in the fact that it is what stands between you and the best things in life then in part two he talks specifically about courage in part three he talks specifically about things that are heroic so pretty much the thing the the act of putting yourself or your ass on the line or risking yourself for someone else or for something or a cause that's bigger than yourself. This part actually really interested me because it's pertinent to what's going on today with call-out culture and you know people speaking up more than than ever for what they believe in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so he had a, a section in there called "Silence uh, is Violence," um, and uh, I just thought it was really interesting. You know, I think a lot of people today are fighting the good fight and they're speaking up for what they believe in. And then I also think some people are using. Uh, you know, their voice is sort of a Trojan horse to pretend they're behind certain things and advance different uh, agendas. So we talk a little bit about that as well. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by Stay Classy Meats. Stay Classy Meats curates quality specialty meat from small batch ranchers and processors across the Northern Rockies. Check them out at stayclassymeats.com and use code HYBRID in all caps to get 10% off. This podcast episode is also brought to you by BEAM. Beam is committed to producing high quality, natural, innovative wellness products trusted by some of the world's top professional athletes. Beam creates products to support four main categories, balance, performance, recovery, and sleep. These products are combined of both CBD and non-CBD ingredients. By tapping into how we function biologically, CBD can work to regulate pain, mood, appetite, anxiety, and inflammation. As a Hybrid Unlimited listener, you get 15% off your order with code HYBRID in all caps. So check them out. That's BEAM and use code HYBRID in all caps for 15% off. Uh, as always, don't forget to screenshot this episode while you're listening. Tag me, tag Steffi, tag Hybrid Unlimited, and tag our guest, uh, Ryan Holiday as well. That will automatically enter you in a draw to potentially win some Hybrid Legacy brand gear. Um, it's a super easy way to do that and potentially win some of the best swag in the gym. I hope that you guys are as stoked as I am, as I was to sit down and talk to Ryan to listen to his podcast because it's a really, really good one. So I'm excited for you guys to listen. Uh, as always, thank you guys for listening and thank you for the support. Sit back, relax, enjoy another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. So welcome to Hybrid Unlimited. I'm so stoked to have you on it. 
Really, it's uh, it's honestly a dream come true. You're one of my my favorite authors, and uh, you wrote a book that really did change my life. And I was so happy when we connected. Just you know, they say never meet your idols, but I was really happy about meeting you because you were as kind and compassionate and and giving as I thought you would be. You know, he sent me he sent me a like a like a special edition copy of one of his oh, yeah, books. Oh yeah, so yeah. The Daily Stoic, uh-huh. and he signed it and everything, so it was really nice. I really yeah. appreciated that. There was actually there's two scenarios in my life where your books have come in handy. One was The Daily Stoic. Uh, Steffi and I, a couple years back, we got engaged, and right after we got engaged and we were all excited about it, uh, I got denied entry to the States. And I was stuck in Canada for seven months. And I was, I really needed some stoicism in my life. So I practiced that daily and it was of great help. And then uh, the other time was actually, I was going through some tough stuff younger when I was younger and my dad gave me uh, the obstacle is the way. And that's probably, yeah, that's probably, um, you know, whenever I get asked like, what's a book that you recommend to people, that's probably the one that I recommend the most. So really cool. Cool to have you on the podcast. You guys are too nice. (laughs) Nah, he's the nice one. He's a Canadian one. I'm just pretend nice. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, but let's start there. What what exactly is Stoicism? Well, it's an it's an ancient philosophy, uh, and I know when people hear that, it sounds very boring and very impractical or very inaccessible. But what I love about Stoicism is that it's not any of those things. It was a philosophy for for people who actually did shit. Uh, there were boxers and there were runners, there were generals. Marcus Aurelius was the emperor of Rome. So, so I see Stoicism as uh, a philosophy for your actual life designed by people who lived, you know, interesting, action-packed, sort of admirable lives. My sort of working definition is that a Stoic believes you don't control what happens, but you control how you respond. So it's sort of a framework, a way of thinking that focuses on like what you control, what's up to you, uh, and and sort of how to be prepared for the stuff that life throws at you. Mm-hmm. Do you consider yourself a stoic? Yes. It, look, uh, it's not something I go around and say I am a stoic. It sounds kind of weird. Um, <laughs> it's also a bit presumptuous. I think even to call yourself a philosopher is pretentious and weird. So I consider myself a student of stoicism, just like, I don't know if someone goes around and says, I am a martial artist, mm-hmm. you know, but you might say like, I practice this or that, or I'm, you know, I'm taking classes in this or that. So I see it as something that I study and write about. I'll, I'll leave the sort of the labels to, to, to other people. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So having written a book myself, I just published uh, my first book, you know, I think that anything that you want to learn about starts from curiosity. What sparked your curiosity on stoicism? So I was like 19 and I was writing for a college newspaper and I went to this conference and I, I got a book recommendation from the speaker. Um, and it just it just hit me like when I, I went back to my hotel room, I bought it and I read Meditations by Marcus Aurelius and I still have my... <laughs> over there um but anyways i i it, it just hit me it was i mean you're reading the private thoughts of the most powerful man in the world open you know he's a meditation 
So, uh, the people you meet today will be jealous and rude and stupid and annoying and obnoxious. You know, he just sort of goes through like, it's just so, and he says, but, but that's because they don't know any better. And he says, what I won't allow them to do is implicate me in their ugliness. Right. And so I just, I, it's just so real and practical. And it was, it was just like exactly what I needed. So that book opened up the whole, whole rabbit hole for me. Wow, that's interesting. What what was the first book that you wrote? The first book I wrote, I wrote a book in 2012 called Trust Me, I'm Lying, which was a, an expose of the media system. My first philosophy book was The Obstacle is the Way. Which was when? When did you publish that one? 2014. Wow, okay. How did you, how did you publish your writing skills, just out of curiosity for myself? So from... The time I started my first blog to my first book being published was something like six and a half years. So I wrote for six and a half years for basically no money, um, very small audience, but I wrote almost every day for free online. Uh, and so, I mean, writing is a thing that you learn by doing uh, for sure. Uh, so there was that, but then I was also the research assistant for a great writer named Robert Greene, uh, who wrote The 48 Laws of Power and, and Mastery. So, so I sort of had these two tracks of doing a lot of writing and then being a research assistant. And then uh, that, that led me up to my first book, which is, it was sort of then that I kind of identified as a writer. Um, but then I, I would say it took, you know, several more books to really feel like I, I, knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, uh, I'm actually halfway through the 50th law, uh, which I, okay. I believe you were involved in as well, right? That was the first, that was the first, uh, book that I was a research assistant on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a cool book. I'm it's loving it book. so far. Um, go on. Cause I have, I'm going to dive into the, this the book, book when you're done. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can go on. Okay. Um, I mean, I love the whole topic of this book. Um, and I love, uh, the quote that you had at the beginning um, of part one, where you're talking about um, basically the peak level of fear occurs before you actually do the thing you're fearful of. Sure. Right. And um, what I loved about that is I've seen this echoed many times over. Actually, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the uh, the will smith video where he's talking about yeah where he jumps out the helicopter yeah and i just i felt like that that to me changed hold on let me tell a backstory here for ryan <laughs> yeah so sure <laughs> i i got i got uh, reached out by the golden knights so it's the parachute team from the military here that in the u.s yeah. and they offered me to jump with them for free and bring a friend and i told hayden say that i was on a monday i'm like hey we're you know by the way, he told me he would never, never go skydiving. Yeah, that was like a non-negotiable when uh -huh. we first started our relationship. And almost. I go, listen, uh, <laughs> I got invited to jump with the Golden Knights. Do you want to come? And he's like, yeah, sure, yeah. Tuesday comes in and I'm like, oh, tomorrow we're jumping out of the plane. And he's like, wait, what? I thought that was like in the distant future, you know? I thought I had months <laughs> to like mentally prepare for this. And so I showed him that video of Will Smith where he talks about this and gone. That was my Did you do it? Yeah, I did, actually. I, I got a lot of comfort from the video. You know, I was still terrified, obviously. But, um, you know, I just, I, I really took to heart what he was saying about, and what you echoed here, in that, you know, all the, 
the point where you're not in danger at all is the point where you have the most fear. And then when you're actually doing the thing and you're in it, it's almost, uh, it's almost a period of, of bliss or of where you have no fear at all. So, um, go ahead. No, I was going to say, like you, uh, jumping out of a plane is a non-negotiable for me. I have literally zero interest in it whatsoever. <laughs> That's what I said. I just, I, I've, ha- I had the same sort of feeling about that as I did with roller coasters, where I'm like, I'm not going to be the guy who holds back the group. If we're all, if yeah. everybody wants to go, I'm not going to be the party pooper. But I'm never going to be the first one to be like, let's go jump out of a plane. You know. So hold on. Before- I did a thing at Fort Bragg once. I did like the parachute training thing where they have you jump off like a tower. And then you get caught by a wire and then you slide down. And it's basically, they have it set up at the, I guess there's some, they were telling me there's some level where it's like, okay, if you're looking out over a ledge and it's like 10 feet, you're like, that's scary, but I can do it. And then your body knows like at a certain level that you'll die if you jump (laughs) from that level. And so they set up these towers at like one foot above that level. So let's say it's like 40 feet, your body's like, all your all your sort of things go off at 40 feet because they're like do not do this this is death um so i did that and it was fun but one of the things i do talk about in the book because i think when people think courage you know they think it's about doing scary stuff which of course it is but i'm interested in courage for a reason right so like i guess i your reason sounds like a good one but i get to find a reason why you know, like roller coasters or skydiving. I don't, I don't, for me, why my struggle with it is like, I just don't understand the point uh, of being terrified for no reason. I guess as a training exercise, it makes sense. But um, th- so far, I'm glad that I've never uh, actually had to, to jump out of a plane or anything. If you ever decide to come to Miami, I'll schedule it with the Golden Knights. Listen, if you All think, right. if you think about it, these guys have over 20,000 jumps. If you're gonna jump yeah. with someone, jump with the military. For well, the experience. And the, yeah, and the whole I thing. I think for me, it's not that I think that it's dangerous. It just seems very unpleasant. <laughs> I feel the same way about horror movies. I don't know what your stance is yes, on that. Yes, exactly. Why I just don't... Like, I only have so <laughs> much time, right? So why would I go do... I guess, look, for some people, this is their argument for not working out or exercising or whatever. But my thinking is, like, I only have so much time. I only watch so many movies. Why would I watch a movie that is trying really hard to make me feel the opposite of good? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what yeah. I say. I'm like fear that's is so just annoying. not a desire or like that being startled is not like a yes. desire, desiring feeling to me. Um, I love it. But that being said, um, in the next uh, chapter you talk or not the next chapter, but the next section, uh, you talk about defeating fear with logic. And I'm just interested in if you can sort of break that down uh, for our audience and how that applies to a situation like that. Well, let's say we're talking about this skydiving thing. You'd go, look, how many people jump out of a plane every year, right? How many of them die? You, 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 st- you, break, you break down the thing. Because often our fears are, are not just exaggerated. They're completely irrational. They're not actually based on the facts, right? Most phobias are based, uh, most phobias, most things we're worried about, most of the fears that we have are, are just distortions of our mind. So I tell the story of Pericles, who is an Athenian general. And, he, he, you know, in the ancient world, they, they would be terrified of these like omens because so much of the natural phenomena that we now are not worried about. I was, I was outside yesterday. There was a thunderstorm. This is Texas. Um, my kids were like, what was that? 
um, because they, they don't know. But imagine we just never figured it out, right? Like imagine thunder was just this horribly loud sound that came from the sky um, and we didn't know what it meant and uh, we didn't know what caused it and uh, you, you'd be scared. So there's this wonderful, uh, actually a handful of scenes from Pericles' life where he was dealing with really superstitious or scared people and he would, he would break whatever it was down. So there's, there's thunder and he, he grabs two rocks and he bangs them together and it makes the same sound as thunder. He goes, are you scared of this? And they go, no. And he's like, well, what's the difference? Is the clouds are making noise or these rocks are making noise? What difference does it make, right? Um, and then there's another famous one where there's an eclipse. And again, imagine you're just going about your life and then the sun disappears. You're like, is life just ended? Like, you know, <laughs> what what just happened? Um, and, and, he, and he goes, okay, but look, what I, if I put my cloak over your eyes, it gets dark. Is that scary? He's like, no. Well, what is it? What does it matter? What's causing it? The outcome itself is not scary. Mm-hmm. You're only unnerved because you're unfamiliar with the cause. So this ability to sort of break the thing down that we're afraid of into pieces um, allows us to proceed because then we have a a much more accurate understanding of the thing. So, um, but it doesn't always work. But the idea is you got to break this thing down. The, the other thing I talk about in the book that I think is related to this is. We do a bad job defining or articulating the worst case scenario. So we're just scared that we're gonna fail. Okay, but what does failure actually mean in this case, right? Someone's afraid to go ask somebody out. So what's the worst case scenario? They're gonna say no, right? Like they're gonna laugh at you. Um, okay, but is that really that bad? You're like, no, that would, that would take five seconds and then I'd never see this person again. I, re- I remember when I was dropping out of college, I was really scared. And I was talking to a mentor of mine and I said, you know, I, I don't think I can do this. And he said, what's the worst case scenario? And I said, well, I fail. And he said, and then what happens? And I said, well, I guess I'd have to go back to college. And he said, you know, when I was in college, he said, I got sick for a year and I missed a year of college. Then I had to go back and he was like, the worst case scenario that you're talking about is that this fails and then you just go back and it takes you five years to graduate instead of four years to graduate. Mm-hmm. The worst case scenario that you're worried about is not even a problem. It's mm-hmm. like a blip on the radar, mm-hmm. but you're just scared because you haven't really thought about it and you haven't really articulated about it. So this, this part about, you know, what is it? And then what's the worst case scenario? We sort of combine those two, we can break down what seems really intimidating, really overwhelming, really terrifying, and we can make it real um, and much more manageable as a result. Um, uh, that 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 that's that's sort of where where you want to start. And I think we also, along that same vein, we tend to not only not evaluate the realistic possible outcomes, but catastrophize and sort of project. Sure. You know something that's even greater than the worst case scenario. And I think that you used an example in the book. Uh, I can't remember who the, the characters were, but they're walking through the woods. They hear the wolves, you know, and all yes. of a sudden they think, that, oh, now we're, in, we're stuck in the middle of a pack of wolves and it turns out to just be two that they were able to scare yes. off. Yeah, that's a story of Ulysses S. Grant. And, and he talks about, you know, he, he's never experienced wolves before. And so the, the, the guy who was with him had, and he says, you know, uh, Grant, how many wolves do you think that is? And Grant's very scared. 
And he says, I don't know, 20. And he, he was like, I was, I was understating it. So I didn't seem like a pussy basically. <laughs> right. And they get there and there's two fucking wolves, right? Like, uh, and, uh, and, and it makes sense. Wolves would have, uh, evolutionary, uh, ability to make themselves seem more numerous and scary than they actually were. In Alcoholics Anonymous, they have a great acronym. They says fear is a false evidence appearing real. Mm-hmm. And so this exactly. is what we're saying is that what, what we're afraid of feels very real, but the risk is actually very small. And it takes logic and discipline and awareness to break that thing down and see it for what it is. And often this is why... Uh, experience makes us brave because we have some familiarity like like so Grant and this other guy they're traveling across Texas the other guy had done this before so he wasn't scared it was Grant's first time and so he he had no he had no familiarity with with what wolves could do and so the more we go out and experience the more situations we put ourselves in the more we can make you know just ordinary courage sort of a habit the less likely we are to be sort of overwhelmed by little things Mm -hmm. i think you hit the nail on the head when you said about um you know so there's a quote here that you said it's better to be pessimistic and prepared so for seeing the worst to perform the best and you alluded to an example from napoleon what if the enemy were to appear we need to have the courage to look at what scares us And it's interesting because Hayden and I have an interesting contrast where like I can be interpreted as a pessimist a lot of the times because of exactly this. You know, I imagine worst case scenarios in my head, not because I think that's what's going to happen, but because it makes me aware of the possibilities. So I think awareness is, is the key. It makes me aware of the possibilities of what can go in, you know, what the directions, all the directions in which. Uh, a particular event can go in and it makes me feel more prepared in case that it goes in any of those ways. Yeah, you can expect the best, but prepare for the worst. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's thing my dad well, used to the, always the, say. The Stoics, uh, the Stoics say um, that uh, the unforeseen blow lands the heaviest, right? So if you have a sense that it's coming, you'll probably be able to survive it. If you denied that it was coming, if you denied that it, it could happen, that's where you, you really get you really get hit and you really get hurt. So uh, I think what Napoleon is saying, he's not saying, you know, be afraid. He's not saying be paranoid and anxious. He's saying that, in fact, by imagining the worst case scenario, what would I do if they were here? What would I do if they did this? What would I do if they do this? What's my preparation in case of X, Y, or Z? This actually allows you to be more confident and less afraid because you, your opinion is based on evidence as opposed to naivete or ignorance or recklessness. So, um, I again, I'd rather be like you. I'd rather be pleasantly surprised that it didn't happen than yeah. unpleasantly surprised that it did happen. Yeah. There's, um, I think it wasn't, because you mentioned Peter Thiel in your book. Yes. I was, uh, I just finished reading Zero to One. It's one of his mm-hmm. books. Great book. And I forget, he, he broke it down into in four categories of people, but there's the indefinite optimist that he talks about, which I told you about. You know, it's mm-hmm. just people who are always hoping 
and hoping is the, the worst word, right? Like you're just hoping for best case scenario. You're hoping that what you're doing today will lead you to where you want to go tomorrow, but it's not through the, it, the only way to go is through. So you got to take the right actions. You got to imagine, you know, all the different scenarios and you got you got to position yourself to be where you want to get, to get where you want to get, not just hope. Yeah, I wrote a book about Peter Thiel, uh, actually called Conspiracy, that you might like. Um, I, I think he's a fascinating person. Um, but, uh, but Admiral Stockdale, who's a character in, in the, the part three of Courage, he, he was asked sort of who had the hardest time in uh, the POW camps. And he said, oh, that's easy. It's the optimists. Mm -hmm. The optimists always thought it's going to happen next week, next month, Christmas, Easter, by the summer. Um, I think we've seen this in the pandemic. People are like, oh, this will be over in two weeks. You know, it'll be over by the summer. It'll be gone by the fall. You know, it'll be gone by the end of 2020. And, you know, here we are entering, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the second summer of it because not just because uh, the optimism was sort of a form of recklessness, um, but the people that are there, they're out of gas. Like they just they had no ability to they, they just weren't set up to to run this long a race right mm -hmm. um and this is something you experience writing books it's like you know it always takes longer than you think it's going to take it's always harder than you think it's going to be and if in your mind you know you're like i'm going to be done by this point um and that's sort of how you ration yourself well what happens if you get there and there's still a lot of race left that that's what breaks your heart mm-hmm I think you see this in boxing, right? Like the, the fighter thinks they're going to be able, they think the fight will go eight rounds. And so if the other one just hangs on, they win in the, the ninth or the 10th round because the other person just, not only did they not plan to go this long, mm -hmm. and so now they're vulnerable, but you can also tell that they're shaken by the fact that they haven't been able to close it out. For sure. And so, uh, it, yeah, optimism is good, uh, but not if it comes at the expense of, facts for sure um i want to pivot into something okay related. let me let me dig okay. on this for a sec because this was just based on the whole pandemic and and everything we were yeah. just talking about there were two things uh in the book that when i read them I, I was like this could either be seen as these things being done or they could be seen as like this is like the trojan horse through which people are pushing an agenda through okay. and two of them were the silence is violence concept and then sure. the other one was speak truth to power so yes. you know you see a lot of people more than ever you know there's cancel culture and call out culture and everybody's speaking up um but just being here in miami which which was sort of like the epicenter for all of the craziness that went on with covid you know you'd go to target and there'd be a mask policy and you know someone feels it's infringing on their their freedoms and next thing you know there's a 20 person brawl <laughs> in the grocery yeah. store you know um so i'm curious what you would say to those people based on those principles you know because i'm sure yes. a lot of them think they're acting correctly and maybe in some instances that they are but there's definitely some misses so, yes on hold concept. on so you say you defeat fear with logic but yes. but where do you get logic from when there's so many people shouting at the same time? Like there's too much noise and not everybody yeah. is equipped with a brain that is capable of critical thinking. So what do we do? <laughs> yes. So um, courage is a virtue, 
but the virtues don't exist in isolation. So this, this book is actually the first book in a four book series. Uh, the first one is, is courage. The second one will be, uh, self-control or self-discipline. The third will be justice. So that's our relationality and responsibility to other people. And then the fourth is wisdom. So the, what you're talking about with masks and vaccines and stuff is a great example because it brings forth all four virtues, right? Um, wisdom how do you know what truth is how do you know what facts are how do you know what the right thing to do is justice what's the right thing for you versus what's the right thing for the most amount of people what are our obligations to society self-discipline you know can you uh you know be mildly uncomfortable you know uh can you endure sacrifice for the sake of what's right and then of course fourth and first which is courage uh you know can you can you stand up for what you believe in can you uh, you know, can you be okay looking weird, etc. All these things are complicated because especially twisted people can misuse exactly what we just talked about to, to rationalize it, twisted agenda. And, and so the, the first chapter in part three of the book, I talk about, I think it's called the, the cause makes all. Yeah. So there's a guy who, who just got fired. He, he was a coach for the Vikings. Um, and, uh, to, to coach in the NFL this season, you have to be vaccinated. All tier one staff in the NFL has to be vaccinated for the sake of the athletes and the fans and, and whatever. And because a lot of them are old. Um, but, but he got fired from the Vikings for refusing to be vaccinated. Now, I think objectively we can zoom out and go, it's pretty courageous to lose your job over something you believe in, right? Mm -hmm. We can also say it's pretty fucking stupid to not get <laughs> vaccinated uh, when 97% of doctors are vaccinated, when, you know, it reduces your exposure to COVID enormously. And again, this is even getting into the justice part about what our obligations to other people are uh, and, and all of that. So there is this thing where, again, I think this goes back to what we're talking about, jumping out of an airplane. Jumping out of an airplane for the fun of it, it, it does require conquering some fear. I wouldn't express it as courageous or brave unless you're one of the, the the service members who you're talking about who's jumping out of an airplane to save someone in a natural disaster or uh, because their country needs them, right? So the cause makes all. There were brave soldiers in the for the South in the U.S. Civil War, right? Just mm -hmm. the worst possible cause you could you could even imagine, and that degrades the courage. It makes it meaningless. So. Um, First off, I don't think it's courageous to, uh, you know, not be vaccinated. And these people are like, oh, you know, the risk is small. It's not about you. It's about how we interact with each other. But we do have, we have this sort of twisted understanding of courage where we think that doing something scary is in itself admirable. And I would argue it really only matters why. I was talking to an instructor at the U.S. Naval Academy, and he was saying, just jumping on a grenade is not heroic, right? What if you could run away and no one would get hurt? Then jumping on the grenade was really stupid. It's not only not heroic, it's actually selfish, right? You just deprive, there, there's a famous story about the Spartans uh, once fining uh, one of their, their generals for fighting without armor um, because he was endangering the war effort mm -hmm. by, by being reckless, mm -hmm. right? Um, jumping on a grenade if there's another option right that doesn't come at the expense of the mission or other people is not courageous jumping on a grenade 
to save the person next to you is incredible is, is more than courageous it's it's heroic and selfless so that's i think the balance of what we're talking about do you, and do you think some of those you briefly uh mentioned this earlier but some of uh it was uh basically making courage or overcoming fear uh a habit do you think yes. some of those more neutral, non-consequential examples, like jumping out of a plane, are a way that you can do that? And then how I, how, how does doing some of those smaller things? That's probably a, like it's a that's a maybe a scarier example than you used in the book. A, a couple examples that I remember are you know just turning all the the water as cold as you can just because it's uncomfortable, or you know admitting sure. when you don't know something. How do you take those little habits? And translate them into you know standing up for something big that does require courage when when you're presented with that you know out of the blue in in life. Well, I do I do think it's a muscle or a habit. Like the more comfortable you are doing it, the more likely you are to do it when it counts. The problem is, uh, you know, there's this there's a, obviously there's they say there's two kinds of courage: moral courage and physical courage. Um, you know, a fireman has a lot of physical courage. A fireman who or woman who blows the whistle on corruption inside the fire department would be exhibiting moral courage, right? Mm-hmm. Um, running, uh, you know, physical versus moral. So the problem is, it doesn't seem like these two translate the way that you'd think they would, right? There's a lot of really brave war heroes uh, who get into politics and then have a lot of trouble uh, standing up for what's right, standing up for other people, standing up to the president, let's say. So the, I, I do think it's a muscle and it's something you want to make a habit of. You, you, If you are constantly running away from scary things, it's unlikely that when it counts, you'll suddenly magically be brave. This episode is brought to you by Stay Classy Meats. Stay Classy Meats curates quality specialty meat from small batch ranchers and processors across the Northern Rockies. They are an athlete-focused meat company. Uh, always, never, ever, no hormones, no antibiotics. They source from ranchers who are for the animals to free-range graze in low-stress environments on nutrient-rich regenerative grass. Montana is known for having very productive farmland, and the nutrient-rich grass consumed by the animals is passed on to us. They cater to athletes who require the best quality products to put in their bodies. Nutrition is the base of our existence. The better the quality of the inputs, the less stressed out our bodies will be, and the more efficient they will run. Quality, convenience, small batch, that's Stay Classy Meats. Check them out at stayclassymeats.com and use code HYBRID in all caps to get 10% off. This podcast episode is also brought to you by Beam. Beam is committed to producing high quality, natural, innovative wellness products trusted by some of the world's top professional athletes. Beam creates products to support four main categories, balance, performance, recovery and sleep these products are combined of both cbd and non-cbd ingredients by tapping into how we function biologically cbd can work to regulate pain mood appetite anxiety and inflammation as a hybrid unlimited listener you get 15 percent off your order with code hybrid in all caps so check them out that's beam and use code hybrid in all caps for 15 percent off we sometimes wonder why you know like the CEO of a company can't do the slightly risky but obviously right thing. And what I try to remind people is like, this person spent 40 years not rocking the boat to get where they are. The idea that now that they're in charge, they're suddenly gonna risk it all to do what's right 
they probably never would have gotten where they were if that's who they were, right? That's the problem. Sure. So it, it, it can be tough. So um, and on the one hand, you have to cultivate it as a habit. It has to be part of who you are. On the other hand, it we, we often see uh, people who know better falling short in the moments that matter the most. You, you think through creating those habits is is sort of synonymous with um, making that who you are? I think it's part of it. There's a there's a, a line from the Stokes that character is fate. Sort of like who do you who are you day to day is who you're going to be under pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's who you're going to be in, a, in in the big moments. So I do think sort of cultivating this is really important. Um, but I, I also just think it comes down to values. Um, you know, who 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 do you how do you see yourself? What kind of person do you see yourself as? And then asking yourself, you know, do my actions day to day bear that out? Um, that 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 the, the idea. But then again, this goes to this idea that the virtues are all interrelated. Courage by itself is not valuable. It's are you being courageous? for the things that matter. So again, you could be a huge risk taker professionally, uh, but a real, you know, coward morally. Mm-hmm. And I guess the question is, which of those is actually more impressive? Yeah, I think it, that aligns with what you said uh, in the book also about judging someone based on their actions, not on what they say. And you remember uh, when our friend Alex shared with us uh, some study that was, it basically, the conclusion of the study was basically saying that people who put away their shopping carts, uh, they're just morally good people. Sure. And I was like, oh, this is a layup. Good people points just for good person points just for yeah. doing this. So now I do that all the time, you know, and my in my head, I sort of went through that. The thought process, which is why I asked you about it earlier, is does how much does the fact that the reason why I'm doing it is because someone told me it makes me a good person affect yeah. whether or not I'm actually a good person? And that sort of I like, think it's a feedback loop, right? So um, every time you put away your shopping cart, you are saying to yourself, I care about how my actions affect other mm-hmm. people, right? Because what it's, it's not the wheeling the cart around that matters, right? right. It's, it's the recognition that somebody has to clean this up right that uh my actions have consequences for other people even if i don't see them and this goes back to what we're talking about whether it's masks or the vaccine or whatever um that we don't exist in a vacuum that our actions uh uh, ripple through um and so every time like you might believe that but then if you're acting contrary to it over and over again it it tells yourself that you don't really believe it. Mm-hmm. And then if you act on it day in and day out, it reminds yourself that you do believe it, mm-hmm. right? And so one of the stories I tell in the book is about John McCain. Uh, John McCain votes against the, the sort of last act of his political life is acting, is voting against the Affordable Care Act. So, he, or sorry, voting against the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. He campaigned against Obamacare, he didn't like Obamacare. He didn't think Obamacare should have passed. But the final act of his life was to give the deciding vote that preserved it. Now, why would a person do this? It wasn't cowardice. It was the opposite of cowardice. It's that, first off, John McCain believed that the Senate and that uh, Congress should act a certain way. 
right? That there were rules and procedures and norms and that those things matter. And he didn't like when his party violated them in passing the act. And he wasn't a fan of his party violating them in the attempt to repeat, or sorry, he didn't like when the Democrats passed it and violated the norms. And he didn't think it was right for his party to violate them in the repeal of the act. But I would say this goes to your point about the shopping carts. John McCain built a career as a politician, as a human being. I mean, he spent seven years as a prisoner of war, um, a, a camp that he could have left at any time. They told him, you know, you can go. He will give you preferential treatment because his father was a high ranking officer in the military, in, in the Navy. John McCain with being a maverick, right, of doing what he thought was right, regardless of whether it pissed people off or not. Um, so he made a habit of it. So as he's dying of brain cancer, as this piece of legislation hangs in the balance, as everyone is yelling at him, it was a no-brainer. I mean, he was it, like, you could you can see a video of it. He's smiling as he does it because, like, this is who he is. This is where he's most comfortable. And he doesn't give a shit about what the consequences are, what the repercussions are going to be, that people are going to be mad at him. He knows what he believes, what he thinks is right, and that's what he's going to do because he's made it not just a habit, he's made it a character trait. Mm -hmm. uh, he's made it who he is as a person. And so that's where I think the behavior and the virtue sort of uh, uh, feed off of each other. If you're a person who shows up and works out at the gym every day, you're a person who shows up and works out at the gym every day. That's who you are. Yeah. And you can you can also develop the opposite habit. Yeah. Have you heard the quote, habits become personalities? Now I have. Now you have. <laughs> habits become personalities. What's the quote? Habits become personalities. Yes. That's or, right. or how you that's do right. or how you do one thing is how you do everything. For me, it's like, yeah. you know, you mentioned sh taking showers with uh, cold water. You know, it's not that doesn't make you courageous. It doesn't necessarily make you brave. Right. But it it essentially tricks you into thinking that you are right, like that you are doing something that's you're putting yourself in a position that's uncomfortable, something that n not everybody will do or want to do. And that in and of itself kind of plays mind tricks on you and tells you, hey, you are the type of person that leans into things that are uncomfortable, that you're the type of person that next step, for example, I was on my bike. I have an Indian motorcycle and I was driving back. I had an hour drive from, from Fort Lauderdale all the way down to Miami and it started pouring rain and it was in the middle of winter here in Miami, which was about 60 degrees. But you know, with, with the, with the wind and the rain and 60 degrees, it feels very cold. It feels very, very cold. And I was wearing just a t-shirt. I was, had just finished uh, boxing and I think a lot of people would have just stopped in the middle of the road or, or gone to a, a gas station and waited for the rain to stop. But I leaned into it. You know, I was like, fuck it. You know, I take cold showers all the time. I do cold plunges. I box for a living. You know, I'm comfortable being uncomfortable and I don't care about being cold for an hour. Yes. Yeah. I think it's about for me, the cold showers or, or any of this stuff. It's like who's in charge. Yeah. Right. It's about deciding who's in charge. And I'm sure you saw this and see this with weightlifting, right? You, you have one voice that's telling you, this is too hard. This can't be done. You're at your limit. And then you have the higher self, the other voice that knows that that voice is full of shit. And so who's going to win that battle, right? Who's going to win that argument? That's what, that's what it's about. And, and I think this applies to 
feats of physical prowess, but also courage. You know, who's in charge? There was something I was publishing the other day. I was a little nervous about it. And then I had to go like, who's in charge? The part of me that's afraid that this is going to, you know, I'm going to take heat for this or the part of me that just does what I think is right and uh, doesn't, you know, doesn't get intimidated. Who's in charge? And when you step into a cold shower, you're making a statement about who's in charge. Exactly. Absolutely. I do the same thing in the sauna. Just yeah. suffer. Or with cardio. Yeah, That's another great cold. one. It's just, yeah. can you be in charge? Yeah, I love But that. it's, I find it really, honestly, shocking how little people step out of their comfort zone in the day-to-day. And obviously that permeates into other aspects of their life, but people always live in this super sheltered bubble where everything is is air conditioned and heated and their garage is heated in the winter and then you go to your car and it's comfortable and warm and they just live a life of just comfort and 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 never never really taking any sort of risk or or feeling any sort of discomfort until they have to and then you're not prepared that's the that's the hard part is the more successful you get the easier life gets Mm -hmm. right and the more opportunities you have for for softness and cushions and perks and and it's almost as if the world is conspiring against you and so you have to it's 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 aspire it's it's aspiring against your ability to endure discomfort and you have to actively cultivate that ability for sure can we go to the chapter uh bold is not rash where you talk about pretty much like that on the other side of courage on one side of courage you have cowardice and then on the other side you have recklessness yes and then you say something like courage is about carefully considered risk so i struggle yeah go ahead go ahead please yeah so so uh this goes back to aristotle he would say that most virtues are a midpoint between two vices so he's actually saying uh and, and courage is the one that he uses um He's saying that uh, courage is in the middle between recklessness and cowardice. Um, and in fact, this is called the golden mean. If people want to look it up. But, but the idea is that it's the right amount. So a, a, a person who has no fear whatsoever is, is almost certainly a liability, not just to themselves, but to everyone else around them. Mm-hmm. A person who is crippled by fear uh debilitated by it overwhelmed by it is also a liability to themselves and the people around them so this midpoint of here's what i'm afraid of here's what's scary here's why i'm going to proceed anyway here's as far as i'm willing to go here's the best way to do it you know um it's it's the idea of moderation that all things including the virtues are done in moderation um I, I think we want to see, uh, you know, courage as, uh, you know, charging ahead without a thought to one's safety. But what if there are people following you? What if it's a suicide mission, right? Again, throwing yourself on the grenade for no reason is not virtue. So um, when you take risks, they should be risks that must be taken, not needless risks. Jeff Bezos talks about how he said, I never do bet the company bets, right? He takes date. He's like, I'd rather be day to day taking lots of small risks than live in a bubble and then have things get so bad that we have to bet everything on some crazy venture. I want to be taking risks all the time. 
So, you know, the artist who has to reinvent themselves because they've done the same thing for two decades and now people are bored is actually taking a bigger risk than the person who's just constantly experimenting and pushing the boundaries and doing new things day to day for 20 years. So bold is not just doing, you know, the scariest, dangerous thing. It's asking yourself, does this need to be done? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, what can I do today so I don't have to take unnecessary risks in the future? I think that's a misconception that a lot of people have is that in order to be successful, you have to take big risks. That's something that everybody says, oh, you know, the, the world's yeah. best, biggest, most richest people are the ones that take the biggest risks. And it's not necessarily like that. You say courage is about carefully considered risks. And Dave, Jeff Bezos also says calculated instead of careless. Yes. And I love that. I think it's so important to to make the distinction between between a calculated risk and an unnecessary risk. I think you call it strategic or tactical boldness yes. versus military gambles. You want to talk about that? Well, so look, I just opened a bookstore here in Texas, which was a risky thing to do. It was expensive. It might not work. Um, the, the risk itself, I'm going to, I'm, I was comfortable with. I knew it, you know, it could fail, it could succeed, whatever. I'm going to take the risk. But once I committed to taking the risk, once I cut the check to buy the building, to start the process, now I want to look for all the ways that I can reduce the risk. How can I reduce my exposure by making this uh, safer? So, you know, there was a bunch of little things I could do that would make the risky thing slightly less risky. So um, it's good to take risks, uh, but you want to do it in a calculated way as opposed to a naive or stupid way because you're not actually thinking about the danger that you're that you're running. Yeah, a, a concept that I think is similar that that we just were thinking a lot about recently to go back to, we just did a, a motorcycle trip, a four day trip through Big Sur. We were riding like 10 hours a day and uh, you know, we were posting about it on social media doing, uh, throughout the whole trip. And I constantly had people messaging me saying how cool they thought it looked, um, that they would have loved to do something like that, but they just couldn't get over like the fear and the risk yeah. associated with riding a motorcycle. And simul- similar, lead to what you were saying about the educated risks i think it kind of goes hand in hand with competency in a way it's like sure. the more competent that you can get at so- at something at the thing that you're scared of it's it to me it almost seems like a balance where you're having to be less courageous almost because you're addressing the risk directly and and lessening that risk to a certain extent But that's right and and it's also worth pointing out that when all the energy that you're spending being scared or intimidated or anxious or worried is often energy you're not spending building your competence at the thing. So like when I'm scared, I have a quote here um, from Martha Graham, one of the great dancers. She's saying, uh, never be afraid of the material. The material knows when you're frightened and it does not help. And so the the idea is like when you're, let's say uh, you're scared of the motorcycle. Well, you're, now it's extra dangerous because you're intimidated and nervous and weird. So when you're scared of something, and let's say it's you know something you have some control over, channel that energy towards building skill and competence mm-hmm. and will be less scared. I'm sure it's terrifying to step in the ring with someone else who wants to hurt you. The best, obviously the number one way to reduce that fear is to not get in the ring, right? To say like, <laughs> I'm not going to do this. 
But let's say you have to. Well, then spend your energy training and uh, building your confidence, and then you will have confidence because you know that you, you know what you're doing. Absolutely. Preparation is the key. Just always being overly prepared. I used to take that same approach when I was in grad school. Yes or no? Which one? <laughs> huh? Being overly prepared? Yeah, like way too much. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even now, look at your notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would pull all-nighters for even like a five-question quiz. <laughs> I was that person. It's so annoying. Um, okay. Um, preparation makes you brave. I, I, have a, I have a section in the book where it's talking about this this uh, manual they would give to, to the, the soldiers in the Second World War. And that was like basically the main, the first paragraph is preparation makes you brave because you know you know what you're doing. And if you don't know what you're doing, you know that you don't know what you're doing. And that's why you're afraid. And that's when you make mistakes as well. Of course. Hey, I want to talk about... You should be afraid. If you don't know what <laughs> you should be afraid. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, so one of the parts that spoke to me the most uh, was on one of the chapters. I think it was called How to Go the Other Way. Yes. So we must have the courage to quit and the wisdom to know when to retreat. I think that's something that a lot of people take for granted. And also we live in a society where quitting is almost frowned upon. You know, you have the sunken cost fallacy where if you've already invested a certain amount of time developing a skill or for a job or with a partner, you know, you're 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 afraid of of being labeled as a quitter and whatnot. And, and it's not something that's celebrated at all. But personally and throughout my life, I I feel and I've talked to Hayden about this. I feel like I've mastered the art of quitting. You know, I, I feel like I, I have a pretty good sense of when I it gets to a point in whatever it is that I'm doing where I know that I've either reached the ceiling. It's not when I encounter resistance because that's cowardly, but it's when, when I can identify, hey, I've done everything that I could and this is my ceiling. Like this is as high as I can go or my competition is way better than I am and there's no way that realistically and objectively I could beat them. It's time for me to move on to something else. And, you know, I had an ex-boyfriend that used to call me a quitter. When I was going through this discovery phase in sports where I was just trying a bunch of different things to see what I could actually be good at. And I remember I bought a, I bought a bike for a triathlon. And he was like, you're not even going to use that or maybe you're just going to use it for one race. And he was totally right. I didn't even use it. I bought myself a super expensive bike and I didn't use it because I didn't like triathlons. I didn't feel like it was something I could be good at. And he guilt tripped me about that. And, and for a second, I believed him. I'm like, oh, I'm a failure. I bought myself, I spent however many thousand dollars on this bike and I didn't even use it. You know, I am ashamed at myself. And then it wasn't until we broke up and a few years later that I realized I'm like, good on me. If I wouldn't have quit the triathlons, I wouldn't have landed in powerlifting. I wouldn't have been Steffi Cohen, you know? I right. knew, I knew no, when to quit. Everything you do, you're doing because you, you quit something else before that, right? Um, we have to say no to things to say yes to other things, right? So obviously militarily, the inability to retreat is uh, seems like bravery, but it goes back to the recklessness we were talking about. Mm -hmm. If you don't know when you're beaten temporarily uh, and you can't, you can't retreat to then regroup and attack again, well, you're actually cutting off future opportunities for courage as mm -hmm. opposed to demonstrating mm -hmm. courage so 
I think that that section of the book, there's some stuff I moved around, but um, I was talking about immigrants uh, who are, I think, incredibly courageous to, 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 to travel, you know, to move from one continent to another, to, from one culture to another. This is a scary thing that requires a lot of bravery. But it also in, inherently implies leaving something else, saying it can't work here. I've done my absolute best. I've hit my ceiling. This is not the best situation for me. And so one, the courage requires the other courage to know when, when to walk away, when to go the other direction. And, and uh, again, these, these virtues, um, you know, work in concert with each other. The next book is about self-discipline and I'm writing about that obviously knowing when to turn around is one thing, but to leave, to quit something also requires discipline, right? They talk about like an orderly retreat, right? Retreating because you're scared and you're abandoning all discipline, that's not courage. It mm -hmm. takes courage to leave in an orderly fashion, mm -hmm. you know, to tie up loose ends, to do it calmly and collectively or collectively. So, um, yeah, so, sometimes you got to know when you've hit the ceiling. Sometimes you got to know when your heart not your heart's not in it. Sometimes you got to know when you're beaten mm -hmm. and you got to walk away so you can live to fight another day. Or find somewhere else about something else. Yeah, I loved, there was a, a line there that said, for the Greeks, retreat wasn't a shameful thing. It was how well you retreat. And then there was a quote, uh, return with your shield, uh, with your shield or on it. Yes. I yeah, love that's that. the Spartans. Yeah, um, I love that. And to abandon your shield was not just to be cowardly yourself, but the, the most shameful part was that you endangered other people. Yeah. Right, because they had that system where they all protected the guy beside them, right? Exactly. My uh, knowledge of that doesn't come from history books. I saw the movie 300. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> it's very true. Um, I, do you still have more on that topic? Because there was one no, other thing. No. Okay, so um, I was curious. There's a, a theme that's constant in your book, and I'll give you an example just of how we have uh, seen it in our own lives. Um, Steffi and I started a business that was largely dependent, our message was largely, largely dependent on how we could get it out via social media. And in sure. the sort of early era of social media, you sort of had these two parties, the people who really uh, accepted it and embraced it and used it. And then you had this other group of people who are just like, it was almost like a badge of honor to them. Like, I'm not one of those social media people. Like, I don't, I don't do that whole Instagram thing. And to me, sure. what, what that said to me, even at the time, was that they were just afraid of being judged. Because sure. it's, it's a difficult thing, you know, to put yourself out there, to put your, I'm sure, obviously, you know, as a writer, to take your ideas or your beliefs and to put them out to the world and just let people judge you on them. Um, and it goes right along with what you're saying in the book about how one of like one of the greatest sources of fear is our fear of what people are going to think of us. Yep. So I wanted to, I I'm sure you've thought a lot about it and I'm curious why you think that is. I find myself falling into that trap all the time not with social media maybe because I've exposed myself to it a lot, but in other areas of life definitely. Well, look, we're 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 tribal people. We we come from like uh, we evolved from clans and small groups and the scariest possible thing would be to be kicked out of that tribe and forced to fend for yourself. Um, and so we're afraid, uh, deep down, that's what we're afraid of happening. Even in the times of the Greeks and 
and Romans, you could be ostracized or exiled, mm-hmm. you know, sent away to you know live on some deserted island somewhere. So we're afraid of that. Um, again, we break down the fear today because that's not actually going to happen. But uh, one of my favorite quotes from Marcus Aurelius, he says, we love ourselves more than anyone else, and yet we care about other people's opinions more than our own. So as a writer, you have to get to a place where you're like, I'm the professional writer. Like, I know, like, this is me. I'm supposed to make what I like. That's what my job is. And then commercially, obviously, it has to succeed with other people or you can't do it for very long. But at the same time, if uh, you let other people decide what you do, then you're not integral to the process at all. So you have to, you go, okay, I have to shut all of that out and trust myself, trust what I know, what I like, what motivates me, and do that only. And if it works, great. If it doesn't, I can at least look myself in the mirror and know that I did my best and I did what I set out to do. What's also interesting is that, you know, I consider myself a contrarian. I've always been that way. I've always challenged the status quo. I've, you know, I've always gone against the grain. When we first started on social media, I was in the middle of physical therapy school and I had a lot, I had very different opinions than most of my classmates. You know, I questioned everything that I was taught in school. It, I thought it was outdated. And anyway, you know, I, I built a social media presence on things that I believed in that were contrary to what most people believed in. You know, when most people sure. were, were having the cookie cutter approach of three simple exercises to get rid of knee pain, I was making videos that say that said there's no such thing as three easy exercises to get rid of knee pain. This is why. And go ahead. You're gonna say something. Well, no, I, I've I've gone through this during the pandemic. I've you know sort of talked about you know whether it's uh, vaccines or, or masks or, or any of the stuff. I've talked about it because it's what I think is right. And people go, ah, you know, keep your politics out. Why would you say this? You know, you're gonna lose readers for this. Blah blah. And I go. I didn't build this fucking platform to not say what I think. This is my platform, right? This is for me to say what I think is true. I wouldn't have done it if it was for you, for me to say what you think. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's this tricky thing where people like you because you are who you are. And then if you let them, though, they'll bully you into becoming someone else. Mm-hmm. So it takes real courage to be like, this is who I am. I don't give a shit what the algorithm thinks. I don't <laughs> give a shit what these random commenters think. Damn I don't give a shit what these trolls think. I'm going to do what I think is right, and I'm going to be who I am. Because to not be who I am is, uh, you know, unthinkable. Yeah. You'd also, I was also pleasantly surprised when I started doing my my kind of controversial articles that, you know, I thought that it was going to be against what everybody thinks, but it's not what everybody thinks. It It's what a select group of people thinks. So that means, what that means is that there's also another group of people that share my similar views and that are going to support the way that I think. So it's like, again, you know, we catastrophize worse possible case scenario oh if i put my ideas out there everybody's gonna judge me well it's not everybody it's just a group of people that's gonna judge you and then there's a group of people that's gonna support you you know well that's right and and again breaking down the fear with logic it's like the crazy haters are almost like i think about the people who i like or i admire 
when I see something that they do that I like, you know, I'm like, oh, cool. I like that. You know, um, it's only the insane haters and racists and sexists and idiots and, you know, nihilists. It's only the crazy people who, who react with vehemence and negativity. And, you know, the haters are always, always louder than, than the vast majority of people who like what you're doing and respect what you're doing and admire you. And so you have to remember that, like, as, as so that story, so to bring this full circle, what Ulysses S. Grant, the reason he tells that story about the wolves uh, is, uh, he, he says, um, there's always more of them when, there are always fewer of them when they're counted, right? Mm-hmm. You think there's 20 wolves, there's two. He said, I remembered that my entire political life Whenever ever, it seemed like everyone was mad at me or it seemed like there were a lot of doubters or a lot of critics, he's like, I knew there were fewer of them when they were counted. So when everyone said, you know, he was an idiot or he was a drunk or that he didn't have what it took to win the Civil War, he knew that, there, that those people were in the minority and that actually way more people were on his side and he just needed to tune those people out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And to go to the nihilist thing, we have such, like, I don't know, would you say they're opposing views? Oh. When it comes to nihilism. Because you sometimes consider myself as a nihilist, but uh, maybe maybe I am in the sense that I don't think that there's some, uh, like, grand cosmic plan, whoever, then everybody's intertwined in this plan and so on. What I think is that, like, or that I have some greater purpose that's being served to the universe or whatever. Uh, I think my approach is, is that um, uh, basically that I choose my own purpose. And it doesn't mean that the things that I do in my... So that's not nihilism. Nihilism is the belief that there is no purpose, right? I, so I guess like but you don't I, think I say he has a purpose. He doesn't think he has a purpose. That's that's the the distinction though. It's like I think on a on a like a cosmic level, what I do sure. doesn't have any impact and doesn't matter. Yeah, we're all specs. Right. So that's like I guess but where you say I'm nihilist. But but I, I when I always say I choose my purpose, and you know whether that's to you know monetary or to help people around me or whatever you know i can still find purpose in my life i just choose it okay here's the thing you can think you think what you want to think right sure. and i think it makes the human experience a lot more enjoyable to think that your contributions matter of course so i to me, I, nihilism is the belief that it doesn't matter exactly it's not, like if your distinction is is the universe giving me the meaning or am I creating the meaning? Uh, then th- you're not an nihilist, right? Um, have you read uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning? No. You should read it. It's an incredible okay. book. He survives the Holocaust. But basically what he comes down to is he goes, people, people like nihilists go, what is the meaning of life? You know, they want life to tell them what the meaning is. And he says, no, you are being asked the question and you answer it with your life, right? That you answer the question, what is the meaning of life with the choices that you make, with the people that you love, with the actions that you take. Mm -hmm. So meaning is something uh, that's not given to us. Uh, Meaning is something we we, we create out of earnestness and commitment and passion and and belief. And from the opportunities that you're given, I think you mentioned in your book, when when you get the call, will you answer? It was something like that. 
And it's what mm -hmm. I was telling you, you know, you're born with a specific set of skill sets, you know, you as a human, how you were you're in your DNA, you have some qualities about you that make you more apt to do certain things. So if you play your cards right and you put yourself in situations where the call comes, then it's up to you. Do you want to answer and put those skills, you know, to use mm -hmm. for a, for the betterment of humankind? However, you know, whatever that is to you or to your skills or not or you want to take the easy route and just stay silent and and not work as hard as you could to expose everything that you were given you know for me it's like i've always i feel like i grew up having a mentality of of i was put on this earth to do something bigger than myself like that's the belief that i've always had you know i don't know exactly what that's gonna be and that's why i work so hard so that I could figure that out maybe in the future. But I think, yeah, man, I think that people who are nihilists and who and who don't share this kind of mentality, I think it's a really, it's a slippery slope to live in and it's sad. I think with the, even with just the decrease in, in the belief in religion even, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I think it served a purpose too, you know, to give sure. people hope direction or in modern medicine that's at an all-time high <laughs> dude well, look, if you don't think that life has any meaning you're right because you've just stripped life of meaning right mm -hmm. that, and that sure. goes to the idea it's not something that they give to you it's not something that the world is going to insist on it's a choice that you make um and some people you know don't don't make it mm -hmm. ryan uh Before we end, and actually this was a question that I wanted to ask at the very beginning, but I forgot. Um, who do you write these books for? Um, I, look, first and foremost, I, I write for myself. I'm trying to write about the things that I am struggling with or thinking about. Um, but to me, philosophy has for too long been this thing that is only for really smart, nerdy people who have endless amount of time to, to debate, you know, ideas that have no practical meaning. I'm trying to write philosophy for actual people in their actual lives who are trying to accomplish things, mm -hmm. right? So the obstacle is the way is for people who are going through something difficult, experiencing adversity and how can philosophy help them? Ego is the Enemy is a book for people, not necessarily with big egos, but anyone trying to do something big or ambitious where ego is going to get in the way you know stillness is the key is a book for busy people who have too much going on and they need to slow down and focus and i think this four virtue series is this is for people who are asking you know what's the meaning of life what principles do i want to live by what 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 values do i want to build my life around and uh this this is uh this is you know an explanation of, I think, the timeless and most important values that we've come up with. Courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom. And uh, I've done courage now, and I'm, I'm, I'm off on the next one. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like uh, like this kind of what you're doing now was kind of your call? You know, your For in, sure. Your interest in stoicism, you know, let you to, to study it, research it, write about it, and now you're in a position where you're writing books for civilians, you know, for the common people to find a way to live a better life absolutely and that that's who i am yeah i'm just a person trying to live a better life yeah i love that yeah i really love what you're doing and i think your books are amazing and so helpful for everybody yeah like that i said in the beginning they've definitely uh helped me out at various 
different trying stages of my life. So thank you for that. Well, that's amazing. Look, I have to run. It was amazing to meet you guys. I want to have you on my podcast, so I'll send you an email and we'll figure it out. And uh, let's uh, let's link up in person one of these days. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah, we should. Thank you Thanks, so much Ryan. for your time, Ryan. You guys be Take safe. Care. Talk soon. Bye. Hey, you too.